Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. Uh, today we're going to be kind of jumping back into a series that we're going to pick up periodically, which is um, going through our catechism, which is an old, world, uh, old word that means basically uh, the foundational beliefs in our faith. It's a, it's a method of teaching and learning that's a question and answer, and we're going to be kind of going through that, and we're going to be looking in a moment at a text, but I'm going to do something different than what I normally do. For those of you who are uh, new here, normally I begin by reading the scripture and then jumping in. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, and I want to begin by starting with a quiz. So I'm going to ask everybody a quiz right now. So I want you to Pull out a a pad of paper in your mind, or you can do it right there in front of you literally, and here is, it's a one-question quiz. If you had to describe God's character, not not his being, so we're not talking about like God being all-powerful or being everywhere, you know, omnipresent, omniscient, those kind of things, but God's character. If you had to describe God's character in three words, there's a lot of words used to describe God's character, but if you had to summarize God's character in three words, what would those three words be? Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment and write them down in that little notepad in your mind, what they would be. We did this exercise as a group of pastors years ago, and I sat rather shocked, because even among a group of Orthodox Bible-believing pastors, Some of the answers were quite unbalanced. And what I mean was the words would be like, well, God is loving, he's compassionate, and he's kind. All of which are true, but they're all basically saying the exact same thing. So there are other things that are true of God that are not in such an answer. So we need to understand God as who he truly fully is. So Think about what those things would be. Now, here's the answer we have in our catechism, and this is actually stressed over and over again as we move through because this affects our understanding of the gospel. It's this. What is God's character like? God is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. God is perfect in holiness, love and integrity. If I had to describe God's character in three words, those are the three words that I would use, and I'll kind of explain why as we move along here. But I want you to think and remember that little answer that you jotted down, because we're going to come back to that in applying the word, because it might give you some fruitful uh, thought and meditation and prayer for the coming week. So we're going to talk about what this uh, means and why we say this. And to do this, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. We're going to look at some other texts, but this is where we're going to anchor ourselves. Isaiah chapter 6, this is the prophet Isaiah, who is probably considered the greatest of Israel's writing prophets. And this is Isaiah's vision of the Lord, of Yahweh, and the beginning of his ministry. So let's take a look at that. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It'll be up here on the screen. It's in your booklets. Follow along in your Bible. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high 
and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now this is an awesome picture that we are given in Isaiah's vision of who God is. And so what I want to do is unpack this, and we're going to look specifically, there's a lot of things in this text, and I've taught on it before, we're going to look specifically at God's character. So the first word that I use to describe God's character is the word holy. God is perfectly holy. He is perfect in holiness. And notice in this vision that Isaiah has, he has a vision into heaven, and God is seated on the throne. And notice the king of, of Judah had just died. Uh, it's kind of a, a worrisome time for the people. He has died, but Isaiah sees the true king seated on his throne. He's high, he's exalted. It's this amazing picture that he has. And in it are included these seraphs, these mighty angels. And these angels are covering their eyes, covering their, their body and their feet, and using the other two wings just to fly. So the angels are shielding their sight. You can think of in that song, Holy, 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 that we do that. They, they shield their sight. They're doing that here literally. And the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This is the thing that Isaiah sees and the first impression he gets of God that the prophet is getting here at the beginning of his ministry is that God is utterly, perfectly holy. The reason it's repeated three times is because that's a number that's used for the fullness. So it is the perfection. God is not just holy. He is utterly holy. He is perfectly holy. He is the fullness of holiness. And notice, lest we think there's any question what Isaiah immediately perceives of God's character, the unalterable facet of God's character that Isaiah perceives is holiness. Because the first thing Isaiah cries out is not, whoa, this is going to make a cool worship song. Oh, this will be an awesome teaching. What's the first thing Isaiah says? Woe is me, I am am ruined. 
I'm about to come undone. I am going to fall apart because God is holy and I am not. And notice what Isaiah specifically says is he, he's overcome with his own sin and the particular part of his body that he picks out, the particular part of his being is my lips are unclean. What does Isaiah do for a living? He's a prophet. What does he use to prophesy? His lips. The best thing Isaiah's got going for him is his mouth. And what he suddenly realizes is the best I've got going for me is not nearly good enough. My, my mouth, the very thing I use to deliver the word of God. And remember, I might say, I try to stand up here and deliver the word of God, but I do not deliver scripture. Isaiah delivered scripture with those lips. And those lips are unclean. They are not sufficient. And in fact, he says, and all the people, we all have the same problem. So the very first thing Isaiah perceives is the utter blinding purity and holiness of God. And it's not just Isaiah has this vision. We're going to come back to this later as well. But you remember, when you go all the way to the other end of Scripture, the very last book in the canon of Scripture, we get John has a vision into heaven in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 4, John is viewing these living creatures that we've talked about several times. They came to represent the four Gospels. You remember there's a, there's a, a man and a lion and an ox and an eagle, and he sees these four creatures, and the four creatures are all bowing down, and, and we're told they each had six wings and would cover with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Notice it's the same call in worship. They haven't changed. They haven't picked a different characteristic. We have now moved forward over 700 years in time and apparently the same songs being sung up in heaven. They don't get tired of this worship song. God is holy, holy, holy. They never stop saying this. It is an eternal call in heaven to see God is to see holiness. Now this is important because the assertion that God is holy is the most often repeated assertion of God's character. Whatever else we may say about the character of God, we may never lose sight of the fact that God is fundamentally holy. A uh, theologian, J. Rodman Williams, put it this way as he was describing the character of God. God is primarily the God of holiness. This is the fundamental fact about God. Now, I stress this because, see, in our culture, we have many people who want to say the word we're about to come to. Well, the Bible says God may be all these other things, but God is love. And the Bible does say that two times. Hundreds of times the Bible says God is holy. Okay? There's no question. The attribute that is most often discussed, expressed, laid out, pictured for us is the holiness of of God. So when we say God is holy, now this includes a whole bunch of other words we might use to describe his character that you might have put down on your little mental notepad. It's the same thing as saying God is righteous. He is just. He is good. He is pure. It means he is a God who judges and is wrathful against 
all sin. All of those type of character traits are lined up, if you want, in the column that says God is holy. And this is why um, we, we see this, and it's, it's repeated over and over again. And there's two basic aspects to this. First, to be holy, to say that God is holy, means that God is totally distinct from and utterly superior to everything else in all creation. This is why these seraphim, who are these mighty beings, and the four living creatures in Revelation that are these mighty beings, this is why they are worshiping God. God is utterly distinct from them. They don't think, hey, we're compatriots, you know, we're, we're part of God. No, God is distinct from us, and he is utterly superior to everything else in all creation. The second aspect of holiness in the Scripture is that God is utterly holy in that He is utterly morally pure without any sin or lack of character. And this is specifically how the term holiness applies to character. It means something that is morally upright, pure, just, good. It is the true, the good, and the beautiful in morality. And so this is why, notice again, Isaiah sees God, and the second he sees God, he sees one other thing, which is his own sin. Because to look and see God in his holiness is to recognize I am not holy. And we're going to come back to that in the coming weeks, uh, because th that if you see this, you have no problem understanding why Isaiah says, woe is me. Okay? Now, this is important for us because this is a description of God's character that our culture does not like. Anything where we're challenged and we might have to say, woe is me, what we say is, i got to change that. Because I'm not going to change. That's going to change. And so we want to change who God is. It's hated in our modern world. We do not want to think that God is holy. We do not want to hear that God would ever judge sin. But the fact is, any description of God that does not fundamentally include his holiness is utterly defective. It's not God. It's an idol. That's all it is. It's just a God that we have made up. So the first aspect is holiness. Now, thankfully, and how many of you know if we stop right there, this is a woe is me teaching? Right? I mean, I send you home and say, gee, this is great, and nobody comes back next week, right? Thankfully, God is utterly, purely holy. And let me tell you something. If you've ever been wronged, you're glad God is holy. That thing in you that says somebody did wrong and I want that, that's you crying out for God to be holy. Trust me, we all really do want God to be holy. It's just that we realize because we're not, we're in trouble. And that's exactly what Isaiah says. But thanks be to God, it moves on that God's character is not only holy, God's character is also love. So notice in the same text, God's perfect love. Isaiah has cried out, Woe is me. Isaiah is literally figuring if this were a Hollywood movie, the next thing is a big flash is going to come out and consume him and there will be nothing left. 
But amazingly, the next thing we read in verses 6 and 7 is one of the seraphs, these mighty creatures that have been worshiping God, they fly to him with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. And what's done on the altar? Atonement is made. Blood is shed to cover sin. And the angel comes with it all. Okay, and I'm, I'm constantly teaching us how to read the Bible here. Who is the live coal taken from the altar and applied to us to cover our sin? Christ. If you're not seeing Jesus, you're not reading the Bible rightly. Jesus is taken from the altar, as it were, and he comes and it touches Isaiah's lips. And it says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for, which means the holy wrath of God is quenched. Not by you doing better. Notice the seraph doesn't come with a self-improvement list. He doesn't explain how you can spin your character before God. He comes and atonement is made for the sin of Isaiah. This shows that the holy God loves Isaiah and he atones for Isaiah's sin. God's holiness exposes Isaiah's sin so that he fears his destruction, but God is love and therefore Isaiah is saved. And we have to understand both of these aspects of who God is. So when we look further in the Scripture, what we see is God Himself is perfect, complete love. And this is why He sent Jesus to atone for our sin. So the passage that our culture would love to quote comes out of 1 John, where we're actually told twice that God is love. 1 John 4, 7 to 10, and then he repeats it in verse 16. But notice what John says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. God is the source of all love. And furthermore, he tells us in verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God is not only the source of love, he is actually love itself. There is no true love that does not trace its root back to God himself. And he goes on then in verses 9 and 10, and he says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's exactly what we saw in Isaiah. So God himself is love. We're told that twice in verse 7. And in verse 16, and we're told, therefore, that love comes from God. And this is important for us to see. God did not discover love later as the Trinity, going back when we talk about our foundational understanding of who God is, God has always been love. God didn't tack love on to himself. Father, Son, and Spirit have always been loving and expressing love towards one another. That is the very nature of who God is. But because of our sin, God's love gets actually expressed in concrete action. And that concrete action, we're told in verse 9, is that God sends His Son. And in verse 10, true love is described as Christ's atoning work. So love is not defined by me, it is not defined by what I do. It is defined by God and what God does. And principally, the ultimate expression of that, according to John here, is 
atonement. Love cannot be separated from that. Therefore, J. Rodman Williams, the same theologian that I quoted a minute ago, says God is centrally the God of love. So what do we mean by that? What, what does love mean? Well, first off, it means anything that we would say like God is merciful, He is gracious, He is kind, He is forgiving, He is compassionate. As I said, some of the pastors threw that description out at our little gathering, all of which was saying God is love, which is true. All of those are descriptors that can be summarized by saying God is love. And I again remind you, this is not something God became as the Trinity. This is why Trinity is essential. If God is not triune, He can't be love. Holiness can be there without there being unholiness. Love cannot be there without an object to love. It requires something to love. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were always existing in love. Now the other aspects of like grace and forgiveness, of course, those only come when sin comes into the picture, when another being comes in. And God's love is expressed two ways towards sinful human beings. First, love is expressed in the way that God sustains and keeps sinful humans even when they deny and reject Him. There are people today that deny this God exists. There are people today who say, God's got an answer to me regarding the way this world is. Okay, you can see this stuff all the time. Even those people are sucking air because God lets them. They are cared for because God is kind and compassionate and merciful to him while they are flipping him off. Okay, that's the way he is. Now, don't take my word. Luke chapter 6, Jesus put it this way. Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So whether someone believes in Jesus, whether they will ever believe in Jesus, God is kind and compassionate towards them because He is the God of love. This is what we refer to as common grace. It's common because it's given to all people. If you are a human being in the image of God, God is being kind and merciful and gracious to sustain you moment by moment. That has nothing to do with salvation. That just means you're being sustained moment by moment by God's common grace. But the second aspect of God's love is that God graciously atones for the sin of his people and he restores them to himself. This is known as saving grace. This is different, and it does not apply to everyone. Those people who reject Christ are under common grace for now. They are not under saving grace. Okay, This is what John's talking about in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what Isaiah experienced in chapter 6 when the 
uh, the tongs were brought with the live coal from the altar and touched his lips. Unfortunately, if we keep reading in Isaiah chapter 6, God says, you're going to go out and you're going to preach, and you're going to preach, be ever hearing but never hearing, be ever listening but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth and understand your hearts are going to become hard and calloused, and I'm going to have to send you into exile. I, I mean, it's a great you know, job interview. Right from the beginning, you're told you're going to do all this, and it's not going to work, Isaiah. They're not going to listen, Okay. There's a difference. Isaiah's sin is atoned for. Some of the people God is saying will not respond. And so these are the two aspects of God's love. Now, again, there's two things for us to remember as we consider this. First, our culture embraces the idea that God is love, but it's he's love the way we mean love. But see, that, that's wrong. We don't define love. The very scripture that says God is love tells us this is how you know what love is. It's not what we do, it's what God does. God is love. God defines what love is. They oftentimes mean something different by it. This is one of the problems we've got. We like to take what God has defined and put our own spin on it and say we know how to do this better. We know how to define this better, but that doesn't change the way things actually are. Me changing love and saying, well, if you are loving, you would never judge sin, for example, doesn't mean that that's what love actually is. That just means I've come up with my own kooky definition and called it love, which is what it is not. Okay? God defines what love is, both in his, in his character and his actions. It is who God is. It is defined by his very being, his very character, and his very actions. Now, that's one aspect. When you and I go out and people say God is love, they mean something very different than what the Scripture means. And we can't be seduced by that. On the other hand, there are religious people who want to reduce this aspect. You listen to them, you would never know that God is a God of love. Because what comes across from them is this judgmental, pharisaical spirit, uh, spirit that comes across. See, the problem with the Pharisees in the New Testament is they're idolaters. They worship a God that doesn't exist. Because when the true God that they proclaimed they were worshiping took flesh and stood right there in front of them, they didn't know who he was. Because he's not the God they were actually worshiping. And so we can create an idol of our own making if we prefer a God of wrath to a God of mercy. I remind you, even on the cross, we were talking about this in our connect group the other night, and Stephen is sitting there as Saul of Tarsus is holding his clothes and they are stoning him for holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The true faith that was given to Israel is completed in Jesus Christ and Stephen is proclaiming that and he's being put to death by his countrymen for doing it. And what are Stephen's final words? Lord, don't hold this to their account. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. See, a Pharisee says, God judge them. God damn them. God send them to hell for what they're doing. And if we do that, we are idolaters. Our prayer is always. When we are praying for the church in China, when we are praying for the church in Nigeria, 
Pray for those who persecute the church. I want to see more Saul of Tarsus stories. I want to see more people who were formerly persecutors that are now worshipers of God, that are now standing up with the church. Friends, that's what we do. Our desire is that the God of love would atone. Oh, we need to be crying out to God. No one is beyond the love of God. God. God is love. Third aspect. I'll keep preaching if I stay on that. God's third aspect of his character is integrity. Now this word is a word we don't use quite as much, so let me kind of describe what I mean by that. By integrity, we're talking about God being unchanging, and I'll unpack that with several different adjectives. So notice in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah gets a glimpse into heaven. This is around 740 B.C., okay, or somewhere in there. I forget exactly when Uzziah died. And he sees in heaven and he hears the angels singing to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Fast forward till after the time of Christ, John gets a vision into heaven and there's singing going on. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Can I point out this is not the latest, greatest, what's happening now? thing. The same exact thing is being sung. Why is the same thing being sung? Because God doesn't change. Nothing new needs to be said because God's not hip. He's not trying to keep up with the times. God is who God is. He is the God of integrity. Because God is perfect, and that's the other word, I'm not going to really describe it much this morning, but because God is perfect, in holiness, love, and integrity, he can't change. If something is perfect and it changes, it can only degrade. It can't improve. It, by definition, is already as good as it can possibly be. So because God is perfect, he cannot change. If he did, it would be bad news for everyone because he would be degrading. And so When we say God is perfect in integrity, what we mean is that God is true. He is faithful. He keeps his covenant promises. He is unchanging. He is reliable. He is true to himself. All of these aspects are what we mean by the word integrity. The word integrity. So this means, for example, first off, God does not change at all in his character, plans, or purposes. I've said before, God doesn't have plan B. It's not like the fall came and God said, oh, geez, I didn't see this coming. No, God always knows what he's doing, and he does not change his character, plans, or purposes. So in the book of Malachi, God is speaking to Israel, who is back in the promised land, still not responding to him. And God says this, I, the Lord, do not change change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I have made covenant promises. I keep my covenant promises. I don't change. And that's the only reason you're not destroyed. Because if I did change, history would be short for you. That's what God's telling Israel. He is faithful, and so he Uh, does that. Integrity also means, and see, and that that part's good news. That means what God has promised, God's going to do. And how many of us like that? I mean, it is good to know that what God has promised, 
that he will do. No one and no thing can stop God from filling his promises for me. But there is a flip side of it that we sometimes don't like as much. And that flip side is integrity means God will do exactly what he has promised and exactly what he has warned. Numbers 23, 19. This is a good verse to memorize both because it teaches you about God and it also teaches you about who you're looking at in the mirror. God is not a man that he should lie. What does that imply about me? God's not a liar like you. You're a liar. You can't be trusted. God can be. Nor the Son of Man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And I remember this is actually when Balaam is out and they're trying to hire the prophet to put a curse on Israel. And this is the response of God saying, yeah, you can do the funky dance. You can do all the incantations and all that. I, that, that doesn't work. I don't change. If you ever remember in Jungle Book where the snake Ka's trying to hypnotize the tiger and the tiger squashes his head with says, yeah, I don't have time for all that. That's basically what God's doing here is, I don't have time for all that. I, ain't nobody got time for that. Um, so so uh, go well home and look that phrase up on the internet and you'll know why some people are laughing. Um, see, God doesn't shift. God doesn't change. When he promises, he does it. And when he warns, he will fulfill that warning. Now, our culture doesn't like the idea, going back to our culture, we don't like the idea that God does not change. We expect him to keep up with our ever-changing morality. See, if you don't like morality today, just wait till tomorrow because it'll be completely shifted. And anybody who is hip and with it will keep up with that, which is really hard to do. But God's just saying, I'm not even in that race. I don't do that. I don't shift. I don't change. Uh, and therefore, and we're going to come to this in the coming weeks, see, good and evil is simply a description of who God is and who God is not. So God doesn't change, so good and evil don't change because they're just a description of who he is. Our, what, what we call good and evil shifts and changes, but that's just us changing words we've attached to things. God himself doesn't change. Our culture doesn't like that. If you tune in on Tuesday to the After Hours video, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more of why God is this way, why, why it's important. See, we, we think because of like, we, we've got the whole Darwinian thought going. So what is newer is always better. Things are always shifting and changing for the better is what we at least say with our lips. If we actually look around, that, that doesn't really work. But it's what we proclaim. God, God's not that way. He was perfect already. He does not change. And what that also means with integrity, and this is really important, is God will not change either his holiness or his love to redeem man and that in all of God's relations, he is first and foremost faithful to his own nature and glory. See, some people try to resolve all this by saying, well, we're just going to act as if God's not holy, and then that's how we'll figure out what redemption looks like and how salvation looks. Or we'll, no, God says, this is who I am. And being a God of integrity means I am faithful to who I am first. I will not change for anyone or anything. In 2 Timothy, Paul's going through a whole list of 
phrases in a little poem or song about God. And at the end, he says this, if we are faithless, he, God, will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. God's character doesn't shift and change according to what you or I do. Now, that can be scary, but friends, that is my hope because I have good weeks and I have bad weeks. I have good days and bad days. And if my status before God is based on how I did yesterday when I come into worship today, it's, it's a bad time. But see, God is faithful. And therefore, we are saved, friends. This is good news for us. So how do we apply this? First question, do I have an accurate view of God? Now, this is so important. As I've been describing a little bit as we've gone through some of these teachings, our understanding of God, everything else flows from it. So it will determine my view of the universe. It will determine my view of myself as a person who's in the image of God. It will also determine my place in the world. It will even determine what we think salvation is. Everything is, flows out of the character of God. So there is a great temptation for you and me to distort the character of God by so stressing one aspect or the other, or even reducing or denying one aspect altogether, that we lose contact with God as He actually exists. Now, we human beings are really able to do this. You know, they, I love reading and listening to things about the brain. I do this all the time. I listen to books and podcasts. Stuff, and they've discovered that the brain is what they refer to as plastic. It's constantly kind of shaping itself and doing things. Do you know that you can go back and rewire your brain and change memories that were there in the past so that you no longer even accurately remember what actually happened? If you tell yourself enough something is true, it gets wired into your brain that you really believe it's true. Even though we can show you a video, that is not what happened. See, here's the danger. I keep telling myself what God is like and telling myself what God is like and telling myself what God is like, and pretty soon I really start believing that. But it doesn't change who God actually is. It just means I've made up a God. So it's a great temptation. Now, John Calvin, the great reformer, said this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. See, that's our problem. We are like an assembly line, but instead of cranking out automobiles or widgets, we crank out idols. That's what we do. Because when I make an idol, it conforms to the way I want things to be, rather than the way they actually are. So there's this danger that uh, hits all of us, and it hits every single one of us, okay? Even as a regenerate believer, you face this temptation. So the question then in this area is, where do I see idolatry in my view of God's character? Where is it out of line with the truth? So I want you to think about those three words, holiness, love, integrity. I want you to 
think and let's ask ourselves. And I want you to think, particularly go back to that little mental notepad and say, what did I write down? Because, for example, if I wrote down God is loving and he's kind and he's a God of truth, what, what's deficient in my view of God? There's nothing about holiness there. Or if I wrote God is holy, judging, and wrathful, well, okay, true, but... So I want you to think about what you wrote down in that little mental notepad. Do I reduce or remove God's holiness? Because if I do that, I think he won't judge my sin, and I think he won't demand that I change. This is a, this is a particular temptation for us. Because, let's face it, you and I sin because in the short term we like our sin. That's why we do it. And when I do that, I want to shift and change who God is. So am I giving into that temptation by removing, reducing God's holiness? Or do I reduce or remove God's love, primarily viewing him as a harsh God only looking to judge and punish me? Some of you know God judges your sin and you struggle when you come in here on Sunday because last Sunday I could worship because I'd had a good week. This Sunday I can't because I had a bad week. Friend, if you do that, you're reducing the love of God. There is only one reason and one way you can ever work. Because can I tell you, your good week was more full of sin than you can possibly imagine. You worship and I worship because a tong has gone to the altar of God and brought out the living coal, Jesus Christ, and has atoned for your sin. There is no other basis for our faith. There is no other basis for our worship. It is all Jesus Christ. You, like Isaiah, at your best, the very lips that God uses to speak the word of God, fall short of God's holiness. So if I come in here and I can't worship because I'm viewing that God is somehow casting me off because of my sin, friend, then you've reduced the love of God. The gospel, the gospel has the final word. Do I believe that? Or thirdly, am I a person that reduces or removes God's integrity, thinking he's somehow changed, or that he'll not do as he has promised or warned? For some of you here as a believer, do you know God's word is true, no matter your circumstances? See, I, I love that God is faithful even if I am faithless. I love that God will remember me even if I can't remember. God is faithful. And friends, do, do, do you believe, do you know? See, well, as we get older, we sometimes struggle with this because we start facing death in the face. Do you know that if you lie and the dew is cold on your brow for a thousand years, God will not forget who is his own? Do you know that he will call you from the grave and he will keep you? Do we believe that? If we don't, then I'm probably reducing the integrity of God. And it's easy to do this, again, as a regenerative believer, because all of our experience tells us are people faithful. I keep getting disappointed because I keep expecting everybody to be faithful, starting with me, and it doesn't work. But when we come to God, he is faithful. 
Now, what that means is to give a little work for this week, and then we'll close with prayer. Do some diagnosis right now. Let, let God's law do some diagnosis to you and his gospel give you comfort. Which attribute of God's character am I reducing? Which of those three? And then I want to encourage you to study, to meditate, and pray upon that attribute of God's character. Now, see, here's the temptation. The things that I am good at and that I am strong at, that's what I like to do. I Sometimes I go to the weight room and you see guys and they look like Arnold Schwarzenegger up top and me down bottom, which looks silly. But what that means is I like doing curls because I'm good at doing curls. It's like, yeah, but, but you already do that. You need to work on the thing you're not good at. Okay, you get my analogy? Spiritually, I like, if I know that God is a God of holiness, I love going to those texts. I love meditating on that. But maybe what I need to be meditating on is the love of God or vice versa. So which of those three? I want to encourage you, study them. If you look up in the catechism, which you can look up online, we've got a bunch of verses that go with each one of the areas. You can also look up on the website. and We've got texts and teachings that you can say, look for those things. If you notice that maybe in this area I'm deficient, I'm not really noticing the holiness of God, when we are singing each week, try to be paying attention and say, that's true. That's talking about the fact that God is holy. And I need to remember that. Lord, I meditate on that. Lay a hold of that. Grasp that. And I would encourage you as you're doing it also to weave it into your prayer life. One of the most effective things is to be praying. Pray God's Word. There's no better thing than to pray the Scripture. If you are meditating on an aspect of God's character, if, if I don't believe God is faithful, and, I, and I'm just struggling with that, then what I would do is be meditating on that this week, and as you are praying for your family members and your friends and people in your connect group, be praying that they would understand the faithfulness of God. Let that weave into your prayer life so it is soaking over you and so that it would be soaking over them. Because we need to understand all of these. If we don't, when you come to the gospel, we will shift and change the very gospel itself. Because the gospel has to line up with who God is. And we're going to see God has worked. Thanks be to God. He has not left us in our sin. But when he worked out redemption, he did it in his holiness, love, and integrity. Did all of them. So we're going to stand together. And I'm going to conclude with prayer, and I encourage you to pray along. You won't know the direct prayer, although pretty much, as I just said, I'm going to be putting a whole bunch of scriptures together to pray here in each of these areas. And I encourage you, pray along to let God soak down into you who he is. Oh, Lord, our God. You are perfect in holiness. You are far above all you have created, and you are righteous, just, good, and pure in your character and in all you do. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. Therefore, we sinful beings are tempted to reduce your holiness, to craft you in our own image. But today, 
we your people confess with the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. O Lord our God, you are perfect in love. You are merciful, gracious, kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Like Isaiah, when we see you exalted on your throne and we perceive your perfect holiness, we cry out, woe is me. For Father, we are full of sin. Yet, we call this to mind and therefore we have hope. Because of your great love, we are not consumed for your compassions never fail. So we give thanks to you, O Lord, for your love endures forever. We give thanks to you, the God of gods, for your love endures forever. We give thanks to you, the Lord of lords, for your love endures forever. We give thanks to you, our Creator, for your love endures forever. We give thanks to you, our Redeemer, for your love endures forever. O Lord our God, you are perfect in integrity. All creation shifts and changes, and we are unfaithful in our thoughts, words, and deeds. But you, O Lord, do not change. So we, descendants of Jacob, your people, are not destroyed. Today we confess that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of heavenly lights. You do not change like the shifting shadows. You are not like humans that you should lie or change your mind. When you speak, you also act. All that you have promised, you have done. Father, when the taste of the forbidden fruit was still fresh on their lips, you promised Adam and Eve that a seed would come and work redemption. And you have kept that promise. For our Lord Jesus has come, fulfilling all your covenant promises and giving every single covenant blessing to us. So today we confess that despite our sin, we are not consumed for your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, you, our God, are the perfect God of integrity. Lord, we profess and we pray all of these things, giving you thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. So be it. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before His glorious presence without fault, and with great joy to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.